This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Turn It Around, and the author is Diana Sierra, and for publishing purposes, she's going by M.J. Hart for this book and others she's going to do. Hello, Diana. Hi. Good to have you with us. Now, I'm going to read a couple things that you have written just to set the stage for the book. You say this, this book is a collage of gorgeous photos with inspirational thoughts. It can be used to reflect upon each day or given as a beautiful gift. You also say, for those of us who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, this book comes to life through my fingers with intention to give a bit of joy, a long-needed smile, a deep thought, a chance to change the way we might be looking at life. Well, that's a great goal to have. We all need some, uh, put a smile on our face, that's for sure. Right. Well, what brought this about, Diana? How did this book come into being? I actually, um, I ran across the list of um, casualties coming back from the war and saw um, saw a 19-year-old with a double amputation and wondered how was he going to, how was he going to come right back into just everyday life. And I thought that he probably, probably would have rather have come back in a body bag with, with war. It's kind of hard, you know, some of those. Soldiers coming back probably wish that they'd come back, you know, in different order. And um, it dawned on me that we need to realize that we we each count, we each make a difference. We we um, sometimes get so caught up in ourselves that we forget that there's so many around us that are looking at us and appreciating us and loving us and watching everything we do, and we make a difference to those people. And so I, I, um, I, it, it, the words came to me in a rush, just one night in a rush, just as an alternate way of thinking instead of this, how about this? And it was, it was, uh, it just came to me in in a rush that we should be turning our thoughts around and we should be thinking positively. A lot of pictures of nature. Yes. And of course, as... So often is said, and which is so often true, a picture is a thousand words. Yes. Leaves us with a feeling, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And these pictures are special. These, the majority of the pictures were taken right here at my home, around the house. Um, we, have, we have birds. We have all kinds of animals around the house. My husband took the majority of the pictures just right here around the house or at the zoo. And then I have two other uh, photographers. One of them is in New Hampshire. I've never met him. He sets up a camera for his bird feeder and uh, gets snaps some shots there. And then the other photographer took just a couple of them from when she was in Austin. As you say, once we learn to recognize that each one of us is an important piece to a huge puzzle... 
that each one of us is necessary to complete the huge picture of life. That's when we can really contribute positively to others. And, of course, what's great about that, we also are a recipient in return, right? Yes, yes. We can, the, the message of the book is we can always take a different point of view. We can turn things around. We think positively and our outcome will be much better. Um, this is a chain reaction to our sphere of influence. So it, it's, it's a matter of turning. It, for one example was this doomsday issue that was going on, and, and people joked about it and everything. But I wonder how many people uh, talked about Christ on that day. You know, it's kind of, we don't think about turning it around. And we can do that with anything, with anything. Right. Yes, that was, uh, obviously, there was a small group of people around the world who believed that was going to happen. But in the process, like you say, some positive things probably came out of it. Right. I, I would bet that maybe some people talked about Christ that day. Right thought about it maybe for the first time yes and that would be an uh, that's an example of turning it around you know you don't hear anybody report about you know how many people might have gotten saved or anything but but uh that's an idea of turning it around instead of laughing about it we could think hey maybe Mm-hmm. sure so that's just the way it works you just turn a thought around well here's an example of a thought from uh the pen of Diana, Sierra, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> in the picture, it says, instead of, I can't, but God can. And then there's this great picture of this, looks like a bluebird, no, blue jay, isn't it a blue yeah. jay? Yeah. I remember those so well, uh, where I grew up, we had lots of blue jay, they're beautiful birds, just uh-huh. beautiful birds, so it's a close-up of this blue jay with... Instead of I can't, but God can, and then how about I can with God? Yes. I think that, to me, that that was one of the first messages that came across to me. When I, um, when I started getting the messages, I was actually, um, I would sit out on the porch and I would drink wine, and I would talk to the universe, and I just I felt like I was connecting with the higher power. And uh, um, we're always saying we can't, we can't, we can't. And, and as long as we keep saying that, well, that's what we're delivered. We can't, we, we can't. And then I thought, we say we can't, but God can. Well, what about we can with God, you know, because we are capable with God. It's not that we can't, but God can. We can with God. And that's that's a way of turning it around, that we're also actively capable with the power of God to do anything and to, to, you know, to make a change, make a change, make a difference, make things better for our sphere of, uh, that we influence for others, for the world, for the earth. It, it goes on and on. Well, that empowering thought, that's what you're talking about, empowering yes. thoughts. Instead of focusing on the negative, which is so easy as for, for us to do. It's human nature. Yes. Turn it around, like you say, the title of your book, Turn It Around. Think differently, and therefore, hopefully, we will act differently. Yes. Well, here's another one. Instead of hesitance, 
Wow, I love this picture of this peacock. Wow. That's That's our peacock at the house. Really? <laughs> yes, we have him at the house. My goodness, that is huge. He's got his I what he's got his wing spread, right? His tail. His tail yeah. spread. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. That's his that's right. Peacock's tail. Yeah. So Here's this incredible picture of this bird uh, uh, with looks like all these eyes looking at you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so instead of hesitance, and then, of course, how about confidence? Uh-huh. And that's just, I think we, we, um, I think we, we need to act in confidence and that kind of thing. And that's just, that's an example. They're looking at that bird with all of his confidence. And and when you look at the picture and you have to see the picture to really tell, you right. can see clearly he's confident. Well, he is proud as a peacock, right? He, he is. He is confident <laughs> yes. in all that. There's no hesitance with his nature and there's no, no worry, no, you know. There's no question about what he is doing. He's showing us all his colors. He's showing us his his being, and he's very confident. And I think when we um, we know we're doing something good or, or right or healthy, that type of thing, we should do it with confidence and, and know, you know, and be proud, be proud of what we're doing. But um, that's just one picture there that just shows, you know, that this, animal here is just confident in what it's doing without question. Certainly, without question, in a very proactive way. Here I am. Take a look at me. And he was doing it for us. He does that for us. (laughs) He does that for us. Yeah. And, of course, as we turn it around, as you have already stated so well, you know, each one of us has a sphere of influence. In which there are many delicate souls who are looking to us with precious, anticipating eyes and hearts. I can remember as a young boy, my Uh great aunt, bless her heart, Aunt Nellie, used to tell me, remember, you never know who's watching. Right. So that that is the key. Right. So going back to the soldier who was coming home and probably wished he had not come back. He didn't. He may not have realized at that moment. And of course, they go through a process of healing and everything. Sure. But there's plenty of people who were so glad to see him come home and so glad to have him back. It doesn't matter the shape of our vessel; it matters the message within. And and there's so many people that would be proud of him and be glad to have him back and have his his thoughts and have his conversation and have, you know, what they can have from him. And you don't, in a moment of grief or sorrow or negativity, you don't think about others or you think about the contribution or who's watching, you know, or who is waiting to see how you're going to react to something. You, you may act out negatively, you know, negatively. But uh, there really is a sphere of influence that we have, and, and we all have that. And it is, it's like I said, it's, there's, life is like a huge puzzle, and without one piece, it's incomplete. So it's kind of, we're each a piece to the larger puzzle of life, and without one piece, it, the puzzle would be incomplete. 
as the poet said, no man is an island. Right, right. Well, here's another thought and a picture. Instead of I want... And then there's this great picture of these little... Those are mockingbirds. Oh, those are mockingbirds, little baby mockingbirds in a nest. Instead of I want, how about what do you need? Right, right. They thought the photographer was going to feed them, actually, because of how close she got in. They were thinking that it was the mama coming down to feed. But it's, it's neat. We should be asking... You know, um, what do you need? Instead of I want, I want, I want all the time, why not ask what do you need? And and that gets returned to us when we help others with our with needs. We're always taken care of. You also say each one of us has a purpose. We have to discover that. Yes, yes. I think, and I think. Well, you know, even if we don't discover the purpose, I think as long as we give out positivity and we we turn our thoughts around and we 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 learn that we don't learn we don't learn to be positive anywhere. They don't teach it in school so much. You know, it, it's something we need to learn on our own and to grow on our own. But um, life is scary, you know, and and when we learn to to be positive about things and to to take the challenge even just that alone will be guided in the right direction and and um help others you know and then that in turn helps ourselves well we've got time for one more thought and a picture here's a great one okay. instead of fear and here's this young boy kneeling down uh-huh. with, a, with his cowboy hat on and this squirrel coming right up to him instead of fear. How about friendship? Right. How many times do we um, avoid, you know, avoid knowing somebody or, or avoid um, just situations? And, and how many times do we not talk to somebody or not say thank you or not, you know, even... Um, appreciating people how many times do we not appreciate people because we'd rather just avoid it whether it be out of fear or whether it just be out of lack of interest when we can actually you know cause somebody else to feel good by you know making a little statement i appreciate you if somebody's done something good for you you know you one example that i have um i was at a restaurant and they this uh couple called the manager to complain, and I felt inclined to call the manager to compliment him on the meal, because how often do you do that? We always want to call to complain, but never do we call to compliment, and, and they appreciate that, too. There's there's uh, reason enough to do that, to be able to say thank you and to, to, uh, to compliment and let people know the good and in life, and not just the bad. The title of the book, Turn It Around, and the author is Diana Sierra. She goes by MJ Hart for the uh, for this book. Diana, tell us how to get your book. It right now it's on uh, www. I and you can get it also through the Amazon. dot com, uh, Barnes and Nobles. dot com. The best deal is through the Author House website. 
right now, and that's that's the only way I have it set up right now. Well, thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. Diana Sierra, the author of her book, Turn It Around. You can find it in bookstores and on the net, uh, listed under her, her pseudonym, M.J. Hart. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on. It's Dakota Man Keith and he's number one. Now you might think Juan's youth was sad. Right. Cause he had a death kill, mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case. Nope. It wasn't his fate. Nope. The Juan's never struggled to communicate. Ha. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on. It's Dakota Man Keith and he's number one. It's That Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, That Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number, number one, Keith's number one. Everybody back with the code of man. Don't miss That Keith Wan Show, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, I Said I Will. And the author is Jerry Wollaston, and Jerry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jerry. Hi, how are you doing? I said I will. That is really a promise that you made to your wife concerning telling her story. And this is what you've written about your book. I said I will is the story of a young couple who at the age of 20 vow to become husband and wife. It's a candid look. It's a candid look at the twisting paths our lives can take and how love, dedication, and faith are often required to find our way. It also talks about, as you put it, that strength comes in different wrappings, that a gentle person can face all that life can throw at them, abuse, giving birth to a handicapped child, losing a child to be because of medical mistakes, loving and protecting their family, and facing death from terminal cancer with honor, love, and dignity. I said I will. Tell us why you wrote the book, Jerry. 
Well, I wrote the book because a few days before my wife passed away, uh, she was running through all the memories and the things that she didn't want to want to forget and that she didn't want us us to forget. And, and she asked me one night, she was holding my hand, and she said, please don't let my babies, my grandbabies forget who I am. Please let them know who I am. And I said, I promised her, and I said, I will. And if, after she passed, I was sitting there remembering all the things I had told her that I'd do and, and making sure that I, I had everything in my mind that I promised I would that I would take care of. And and that kind of came into my mind, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I just lost my wife. I have no idea how long I'm going to be left on this earth. I know my granddaughters are very, very young, and so I decided the only way that I could guarantee that I could make that promise good was to leave them a, a, a written account of their grandmother so they would know who she was and know what she was about and know how she got to be the person she was. And your book goes all the way back to a time when you were five years old, and by the time you're in fifth grade, you meet this special young girl. Yes, sir, that's true. We met when we were 10 years old. I'd moved to Ardmore, Oklahoma after being all around the country growing up in the oil patch. I'd, I'd, I'd been in seven schools time I was in the fifth grade. And uh, I met Susan when we were in the fifth grade and 10 years old. We... Uh, you know, grew up together, went to school together from, from the rest of our life through high school. Uh, we dated uh, in high school, went to prom together, and got married uh, two years after high school. Your wife was called a DES daughter. Now, tell us what that means, a DES daughter. DES was a, was a drug known, it, its real name was diethylstilbestrol. Uh, DES was its acronym. That was given to pregnant women from about 1940 through 1970 uh, to aid in problem pregnancies. Uh, it was determined in 1971 that this drug uh, had the ability and, in fact, was causing uh, cancers and other problems uh, in in the babies whose mother was given the drug during their pregnancy. And those babies, the first generation of those babies, are called if they're if they're female, are called DES daughters. And so, that was that prominent in her mind at all at that time? I mean, was that on your mind or her mind of what that could mean? You know, when we first found it out, found it out, it was it was you know it was a it was a pretty much a shock uh, because. Uh, we just had it. This our, our Down syndrome child had just been born. Uh, we knew things could go wrong in life by that time. Even though we were only 22 years old, having a Down syndrome child or a, a special needs child pretty well wakes you up. And, and, and you know, the next night, you, you next morning, you wake up and you're 40 years old all of a sudden. And so, yeah, it, it really did. Uh, it really did shock us. I know it, I know it bothered her. I, I know at the time, you have to remember back in those days, you didn't just click a mouse and, and go to Internet and read all you could read about it and find out everything. And, and so I know she did some research on it and found out what it meant, what it could mean. But essentially, it was the detail of that was lost. Just It was lost in life. Uh, you know, we had three more. We had three children. We had a business to run. Uh, just the everyday everyday thing of, of, of getting all, getting through life and raising a family. 
essentially she she let it get into the very very back part of her mind and, and it was basically forgotten well and that's what your story is really trying to help people because everyone goes through life uh, there's all kinds of situations there's all kinds of the unexpected there's all kinds of 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 trials and adversity but at the same time things just kind of slip away and and we forget sometimes the significance of something that could be a danger yeah you know i i i've told people that being a ds daughter as i see it of course i've never been one but i i lived with one for for 40 years um it 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 really manifests itself in in one of two ways either Either you become obsessed with it and you get up every day worrying worrying about it, or you pretty well just let it let it go away and 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 hopefully you remember it a little every now and then and you're having the proper the proper test done. Uh, and but basically it, it it gets in the back recesses of your mind and, and you don't think about it. It's kind of like it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. I guess you would say. Now you say that your wife was an abused child. Um, did that affect you and your wife's relationship? It, it, it. I'll tell you, it did in a way, and and it's kind of a strange way. Uh, the way it affected her and my relationship was, she was more willing to be forgiving about it than I was. And, and, and it, I know that sounds strange because I wasn't the one that was abused. But I was not willing to for, forget or forgive that situation. And she really worked to get past it her whole life. And, and I made no effort to get past it because it was, not, it, was, it was something I never wanted to forget happened. And so at times she would, she would want to, to go do something or be around someone. And, and I'm thinking, why would you want to do this after what they did to you? And and that that's the only way it really affected us in that in that she was just a much more forgiving person than I am. Now the day that you discovered and were told that your wife was very sick, uh, what do you remember of that day? Well, she had been sick for a long time. Uh, the doctors kept telling us, you know, that she was that she was cancer-free, that, that everything had went right, everything was fine with the treatments, and and that, that she had beat the cancer. But she was in continuous pain. It's just unrelenting pain that that nobody was dealing with, and, and she was just having basically to put up with. And uh, so the, the day that I found out that, that, she, that, that she was terminal, it started off like a lot of other days, in the fact that she got up, woke up with severe pain. The only difference was that I had told the doctors a couple of days before that that I had watched this pain the last time I was watching my wife have it. And so we went to a, to a, to a doctor, to a general practitioner, not, not the oncology department, and he gave, he gave her relief for the pain. He gave her medications that would, that would take care of the pain. And I, ne- and I remember after he gave her the, gave her shots and then sent her to a pharmacy to get some, get the, get the medications filled. I remember on the way she actually smiled for the first time she had smiled in some time because she thought that, you know, we had won and now she was, somebody was finally going to give her some help with this pain and she was going to be able to get through it. 
And I walked into the pharmacy, left her in the vehicle, gave them my prescriptions, was standing there waiting for them to be filled when when I got a phone call on my cell phone. And that phone call was from the oncologist. And because we had finally got a PET scan, and a, a third PET scan run just two days prior at my request, he called me and told me that she had two days to two weeks to live, and and I I really I really didn't have any feelings. I mean, I was in such shock. Uh, I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel uh, I didn't feel hurt. I just didn't feel anything. Uh, the f- first thing that came through my mind is, how do I tell her? How do I break this news to her? Now we've been through a lot of things in forty years, but. But just exactly how do I announce to her that she's got two weeks to live? And how do I announce it to my family who also thought everything was okay? So how did she handle it? Well, I, uh, I, I got left the pharmacy, and I went back to her GP's office because he didn't know that he didn't know I'd gotten the news either. And when I turned out of the parking lot of the pharmacy and went south instead of north toward where we lived, she said, "Where are we going?" And I said, "Well, I got to go back to the to the GP's office here and talk to him, make sure that we got all the meds that we need." And she she took that, you know, for what it was worth. And and I went back and I I told him about it. And uh, you know, of course, he had his condolences and said, "You know, give her all of the medicines that I've ordered for." And I'm going to set uh, set you up for hospice to come and uh, work with with Susan. And so I got back in the car, and, and I, I'm i rolling all of this around in my mind, and I haven't really said anything. And where we live is a little town of about twenty five, thirty thousand 30,000 people, and, and we were on the outskirts of town. We live in the country, and we were on the outskirts of town, and I still hadn't said anything. And she looked, she said, Jerry, and I said, yep. She said, uh, what's wrong? And, and, you know, it was just the fact that, that we were so close and we had known each other for so long even not saying anything, she knew something was up. She knew that, that there was expression or something on my face that just wasn't the way it should have been. And uh, I told her, I said, uh, you know, your oncologist called while I was at the pharmacy. And she didn't say anything for a minute. And then she finally said, how bad is it? And I said, Susan, he said, you have two weeks to live. And uh, she really didn't say anything. She she took the took it for what it was worth. Uh, we just basically said nothing to each other for a while and just held hands and drove down the road. How have you been able to get by some of your criticisms of the medical community and the way that that uh, very sophisticated community treated your wife? Well, basically, uh, it's kind of just, try not to think about it any more than I have to, uh, realize that uh, there are there are people out there that would have would have done it different, that there's there's good medical doctors, there's good nurses, there's there's good hospitals, there's good facilities and and uh, we just we just we just didn't get that treatment. And uh, I had a lawyer ask me one time when he first found out I I, I do a lot of work. My matter of fact my ninety five percent of my time is in my professional uh, career has been in litigation, and I asked. I had a lawyer ask me, "Jerry, what do you want to do about this?" And and I said nothing. You know, it wouldn't, it would cure nothing for me. It wouldn't bring my wife back or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so I've just really just gotten 
it's just like anything else. It's kind of like a sore thumb. It finally just goes away. Uh, and and I know about it, and I tell people about it. I had a friend of mine tell me when Susan was going through all this, Jerry, you need a, she needs an advocate. You need somebody in your corner. And every time I have a friend or an associate that I hear of that's that's fixing to do some kind of a of an oncology project where they're taking treatments or having surgery or whatever, first thing I tell them, get an advocate. Get somebody in your corner. Find if it's your GP or a friend or somebody that you can you can say, okay, here's the person that I want to talk to besides me that that can keep everybody honest that that will that that will and make them answer the questions. You know, I I I I told somebody in a, the other day, you know. Make them answer your questions. I don't care how stupid they think they are; they're your questions. You know, make them make them answer it, whether they want to or not, because it's your life. And 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 that's really what I think I've learned from this experience is that I would I would never have another one of my family members go into this with just with just them and me. We need we need somebody as an advocate on our side. Well, your two granddaughters are how old right now? One turned three in March, and the other two in two this month. Well, they certainly will value your book so much, and women who are finding out that they're DES daughters, right? Yeah, you know, I, 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 my main goal, of course, in writing this book was for my granddaughters, and but my secondary, my secondary goal was to, you know, wake everybody up that that needed to be woke up, and and actually say, you know, think about it. Are you a DES daughter? Do you know? Uh, have you asked your mother? Has she thought about it? Uh, I, I gave a seminar uh, uh, on the environment to, to the International Garden Club a month after my wife was diagnosed with cancer, and by then I had the DES uh, situation had had you know reared its ugly head, and we were well aware of it again. And, and I had fifty or sixty women in there that was of the of the age where DES would be a be a could be a problem. And what surprised me was when I talked to them about it. Not a one of them had ever heard of it. Did not even know what a DES daughter was. Didn't know what DES was, and that really surprised me. And so, one of the goals I set was, you know, to to make to make these people aware. And and since the books came out, I've gotten a lot of feedback and from from DES daughters saying, Jerry, thanks for reminding me. I'd forgotten it. Uh, you know, I didn't didn't even know about it. Uh, and but now I'm aware of it, and, and I talked to my mother, and sure enough, she took DES, and just the whole get- gamut of things that you know would uh, that, that you would hope for, uh, I've seen come to fruition, and that's really been that's really been really made me feel uh, feel good. The title of the book, I said I will. Jerry, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available and online on all the major. Major booksellers, Amazon, uh, books, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Uh, there's about anywhere that that sells books. It's available online. It's also available. I have a website, JerryWallaston.com. It can be ordered from there. It's it's available from Author House. Uh, just about anywhere you want to get. It's not hard to come up with. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for joining us on Author Talk. Thank you, sir. That was Jerry Wollaston. He is the author of his book. I said I will. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. 
People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, this book of poetry, Love, Grief, and Hope. And the poet is Ann Billett, and she joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ann. Hi. Good to have you with us. Now, before we get into some actual readings of your poetry, I'm going to read a few things that you have written to set the stage of your book of poetry, Love, Grief, and Hope. You say this. I am a widow who wrote about how I dealt with the loss of two important people in my life, my husband and my mother, and I think you would be able to relate to what I have to say. My style of writing is physical. You can feel my emotions. You will cry with me, but your heart will also rejoice and be filled with hope. Well, these two, obviously, loved ones uh, who... Well, anytime we have loved ones who leave us like this, uh, pass on, it's very difficult. And was that the main reasons why you started writing? Well, I really started writing when I was a very young woman in my late teens. For me, writing has always kind of been uh, like breathing. It was a way for me, you know, I did journaling, but poetry just seemed to come out of me as a way for me to deal with my feelings at different times in my life. But I was married for 38 years, and my husband died three years ago, and he was only 62. And it was very difficult because I just felt that I had been cheated. And so I was trying to deal with my grief. And, you know, there's really no one-size-fits-all way to deal with grief. But for me, writing was a way to deal with that. It just was a very cathartic process for me to write my feelings and my emotions. And... um, Three days, or two years later, excuse me, on the exact same day, my mother died, and my mother died of Alzheimer's. And so it was a a time in my life where I was really feeling alone, uh, 
and very sad, and uh, I just decided I couldn't live like that. And the more I wrote, the more hope I had. And for me, hope became a very cumulative kind of feeling. And so I started writing more and more and started sharing my poetry with a couple of my very close friends, and they both said that I should consider publishing because what I was saying was something that a lot of people could relate to. So that's kind of where it all came from. The book is divided into different sections, like the title, Love, Grief, and Hope. And you say there's a reason for that order. Right. I I think, you know, all of us in our lifetime are going to experience love. We're going to experience grief, the loss of someone we love, or the loss of a relationship, or the loss of a job, or whatever it could be. And that leads us to grief. But at the same time, um, we have to understand that if we let grief define us, we go nowhere with ourselves in our life. And so we have to get through the grief, and that leads you to hope. So for me, that was kind of my mantra, that you love, you grieve, but you work through that, and you come out on the other side of this with a great feeling of hope and possibility. So that's why I chose that. And writing is your therapy. It sure is, you know. It really is. And I I really tell people, you know, try it. You know, as I said earlier, there's no one-size-fits-all way to deal with grief. But for me, writing was. Now, why do you call your writing physical? Because as you read what I've written, my emotions are right there under the words and surrounded in the words, and they make... Almost everybody who has read what I have written tells me that they cry. And that was never my intention, but I think the emotions are so, were so raw when I wrote this poetry. It's a very physical reaction that you get when you read it. So that's why I call it physical. Because I think emotions are part of us, and we all as human beings kind of share the same gamut of emotions, don't we? I agree, definitely. Well, let's have you read one of your poems, and then you can tell us why you wrote it and what you were feeling at the time. The first poem, I'm going to read a poem from the section under love. And I didn't give titles to my poems because I just didn't want to. (laughs) I just couldn't. So the poem I'm going to read is on page 11, and it starts with this line. You just seeped into me unexpectedly, and all I want is more. I want you with a love so wild and strong and inviting that I can barely breathe. You bring back the live wire sizzle to my blood and shoot sparks through me. You make my world stop. When I look into your eyes, the whole world around me goes quiet. I'm at peace in your presence, yet you sent jolts of excitement through my system. I wrote this poem when I first met my husband, and that was about 42 years ago. Well, as you say, that's a uh, filled, that's what's great about poetry, and when you, uh, what's, what am I, when you boil down emotions into a, just a minimum amount of words, right? Right. I mean, I don't know if boil down is the right description, but, you know, when you force emotions maybe that's better into just a minimum amount of words the words are filled with emotion right 
Right. And they evoke feelings. Yes. They evoke feelings. But isn't feeling. that what they're supposed to do? I mean, for me they are, anyway. Well, exactly. Exactly. And, now, you also call yourself word smart. Yes. <laughs> um, there was a, a researcher at Harvard many years ago uh, named Howard Gardner who developed a theory called the Theory of Multiple Intelligences. And when he first started out with this theory, he said there were really seven, di- seven different ways that we learn, and one of them is linguistic. And those are what they call the word-smart people, the people who are the readers and the writers and the people who, who just are turned on by words. So I call myself word-smart because I am linguistic. I love to write. Uh, when I was working, I used to write grants. I used to do curriculum development and, and do writing there. So for me, words are just simply a part of who I am. I mean, I'm someone who reads four or five different kinds of books on a daily basis to get through them. I can't just read one thing. I have to read many different things and get back to them, and I have to read on a daily basis, or I really literally get ill. It's kind of silly. Well, that's an amazing gift, talent, uh, state of mind, if you will, Uh, Mm. and it certainly has benefited you, and sounds like from your poetry you're going to benefit a lot of others. I, I, You know, I never... You know, quite honestly, I wrote not for anyone but myself. For me, it was the very act of writing was therapeutic. So the fact that other people are getting something from my writing, I can't tell you what that means to me as a writer. Um, it, it, it really uh, is very, it enriches me and honors me to think that there are people out there who want to read it and ask me, are you going to write more? And, um, that they get what I'm trying to say. That means a lot. Well, let's hear another poem, and this one taken from the section titled Grief. Okay. Uh, let me see if I can find the one I wanted. Okay. I have sat down with grief. Grief has held me in its hands. It is not a welcome visitor. I have felt it pour over me, almost drowning me. But I have learned to set it aside and put it to rest. My strength has become much more delicate, so I try to weave a net strong as spun steel to wrap around me and shield myself from more pain and more longing. Slowly my sense of loss lessens, and I catch myself from hitting bottom. Now I realize that choice, not chance, determines my destiny. And gradually, a soothing peace settles into my being. You're the teacher. Right. Very good. Very good. What happened there? What what how did you well, come to this realization? You know, my husband had never been sick. And when he got sick it was like instantaneously. And from the day he got sick, it was like not even two years to the day he died. It was eighteen months. And so I came to grips with that over, it, it, it's like I knew it was going to happen, but you always hold out hope that it's not going to happen. And after he was gone and I went through his things and I had to deal with my life as a, a single person after having been with him for 38 years, it just came over me like a, a cold sweat and it just gripped me and, uh, uh, it was a very difficult time, 
and uh, but I felt that if I let myself be defined by these feelings, that I would lose my sanity, that I would lose my purpose for being a lively, energetic, caring human being. And so I just had to sit down and deal with this grief and, and, and say, look, you're not going to define me. You're not going to rule my life. You're not going to drown me and take over myself. And so that's where this came from. This came when I realized and I came to grips with the fact that, you know, he's gone. He's not coming back. Now what are you going to do? How are you going to go forward? Is it scary to share your innermost feelings? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? This is the most scary thing I think I've ever done in my life. I really went out on a limb on this one because I really revealed my very innermost feelings and emotions. And um, But I think the very fact that I did that is what saved me, is what healed me, and I'm still healing. I'm probably never going to be completely healed until I'm gone myself. But, uh, yeah, definitely. Well, and you say when you go out on a limb, isn't that where all the fruit is? Definitely. So you you have to take a risk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the other section, the third section, called Hope. Read a poem from the section titled Hope. Okay, and this one's on page 79. I'm getting from who I was to who I'm supposed to be, to who I really am. I've gone through much labor and rebirth to be the new me. Now I want to live from the inside out, from deep within my soul, and be willing to change. I like the things I know. I feel safe there. But I must be present to the time in which I live. I need to adapt myself to the conditions of the moment. This is the most difficult thing I have ever gone through, but also the most significant. I am prepared to modify my destiny by acting in the present with new purpose. I am prepared to take advantage of every challenge coming my way. I will trust my instincts, no matter how scary, how difficult, how irrational, or how troublesome possibility is waiting for me. You've gone from participant to teacher to philosopher. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) You know, I, I feel very blessed that this just bubbled up and out of me. I don't know where it came from. Um... You know, but as I said, you know, it's a wonderful way to deal with problems that beset you in your life. Uh, to put it on paper, it's, it, it takes on a, a life of its own. And you would say to the world, be open to change and possibility in your life. Exactly. You know, um, I take inspiration from the turtle. You have to stick your neck out to move forward. You can't stay in your shell all your life. And you don't know what you're capable of doing unless you do it. You know that old saying, believe it to achieve it? I really think that's true. If you had told me 20 years ago that I would be a published author today, I'd laugh in your face and say, are you kidding? And here it is. So, you know. And you also believe in the absolute necessity to give yourself daily time for reflection. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think too often we live in such a microwave society of quick and easy, fast to go, hurry up, get out of my way, that if we don't take time to reflect, we're going to lose our humanity. I really believe that. And just a final thought, make a comment about this passion that we 
need to get a hold of, don't we? We have to have we have passion for something that we believe in it and then take action. Yeah, you know, there's an old Dutch saying, if you're not whistling on your way to work, you probably don't belong there. I think the key to, to a successful life for each of us is to find what turns you on, what gives you joy, what fills your soul, what puts a smile on your face. That's what you should be doing. I was a teacher for many years, and I taught... In part of my teaching career, I spent 20 years teaching first grade, and people would say to me, oh, my God, how boring, how can you do that? And I said, it was never boring. Every year there were new children. And every year, even though it might have been the same curriculum, it took a different turn based on the interest of the kids. So, you know, I feel that for me, teaching was a vocation. It wasn't just a job. And if you didn't like kids, you shouldn't be doing it. So I think everybody has to find what gives them great joy in their life, what fills their soul. And that's what we should be doing. Well, you certainly given us some joy in talking to you, Anne. It's been, a, it's been an emotional journey. We appreciate you sharing. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can get my book at authorhouse.com. I'm also available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. The title of her book of poetry, Love, Grief, and Hope. And we've been talking to the, and we've been talking to Ann Billet, poet. How does that sound? Ann Billet, poet. It's thrilling, really. <laughs> Gives me goosebumps. <laughs> well, thank Isn't you, Ann. Really? Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. <laughs>